The word vipassana in Pali means seeing clearly, seeing things as they are. This refers to a couple of things. It means seeing the specific qualities, the specific elements of experience, like the different sensations in the body, different patterns of thought, different kinds of emotions, of the five physical senses. So we actually see clearly, moment to moment, what it is that's arising. It also means seeing clearly some of the general characteristics of experience. That is, those, those laws which are governing the entire process. For example, seeing clearly into the nature of impermanence. So that it goes from being an intellectual understanding to a visceral one, one that we know from the inside, we know deeply in ourselves. To seeing clearly into what is meant by dukkha, the basic incompleteness or unsatisfying quality of impermanent events. And it means seeing clearly into anatta or selflessness. This last one, seeing clearly into anatta or selflessness, is the hardest one to understand. This idea of no self in some way is the most puzzling aspect of the Buddha's teachings. What does it mean to say there's no self? If there's no self, who's making effort? Who came here to be on retreat? Who's being mindful? If there's no self, who experiences karmic results? Who is it that's reborn? there's no self, who falls in love? Who gets angry? Who feels happy? These are the questions that come up again and again as we try to puzzle out just what this idea of selflessness is about. Sometimes people hear this idea or notion and get afraid. Somehow they imagine selflessness to mean disappearing in some big cosmic explosion, and all of a sudden, you know, poof, we're gone. And that kind of can be a little scary to people. Or maybe people imagine it as some kind of merging into an undifferentiated cosmic blob of something or other, you know, where where there's no sense of differentiation. A deep understanding of selflessness, of anatta, is really the jewel of the Buddha's teachings. It's just at the heart of what liberation is about.
And in our practice, and in some way the purpose of practice, is to begin to open ourselves to the possibility at first of glimpsing and then of really deeply realizing this radically transformative way of understanding a whole different perspective on ourselves, on life, on the nature of things. As the observing power in our mind grows, through practice, through the discipline of the practice, we find that we are not who we think we are. That we're not the thoughts that are going through the mind, and we're not the body, and we're not all the emotions that arise and pass away. We begin to see that the whole sense of I, of self, is a fabrication. It's a construct of our minds. And it comes, especially when we get first glimpses of it, it can come as a big surprise that we're not who we think we are. And it also comes as a big relief. It's a relief (laughs) not to be identified with all these things. As one Sri Lankan monk put it, no self, no problem. (laughs) And there's a lot of truth in that. Tonight I would like to talk about how the mind creates this very deeply conditioned sense of self. Because it's strong in all of us. You know, and strong in humanity, in the human condition. It's very rare to find someone who has gone beyond the attachment to this notion. But we can begin to unravel, we can begin to unpack this idea of self that we have if we understand how it has been created, how it has been conditioned in the first place. There's one factor of mind which is very instrumental in keeping us identified with and attached to this conventional notion of self, of I, of separation. And what's interesting is that it's the same factor of mind which in another way actually supports mindfulness. So it takes a lot of discrimination and clear seeing. And this is the factor of perception. Perception, as we've mentioned, is just that simple recognition of what the object is. It's that quality of mind which picks out the distinguishing characteristics and remembers it. When perception occurs with mindfulness, 
then it supports us in being very mindful exactly of what's happening. It's framing, this perception is framing each moment of experience in order that we can see clearly, in order that we can really be present for vipassana, for seeing things as they are. But when there is very strong perception, that is the recognition of the object, without mindfulness, when this factor of perception is very strong in the mind and we're not being mindful, what happens is that we become attached to the surface appearance of things. We get attached to the names that we give to things. Because we don't have the mindfulness which actually leads us to a deeper place of understanding. As an example of how this works, we can see it very clearly in our relationships with people. Now we meet somebody, we get to know them somewhat, we recognize them as a particular person, as a particular individual, When mindfulness is not strong, and we meet them again and again and again, this factor of perception keeps us locked in to a concept of who that person is. Oh yeah, I know that person. We put them in a box you know, of our perceptions. We think we know them. We try to figure, or we do fix them in a certain way. And it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult especially with people who we know well and meet often, to really see them fresh every time we meet them. And this is precisely because perception in this situation is stronger than mindfulness. We're not paying such careful attention to just what's happening in the moment, but we're relying on our past recognition. And so it's very limiting in terms of our relationships, in terms of our understanding of things. And this happens very frequently with most of the repetitive experiences we have in our lives. We see the same thing over and over again, or we hear, or we feel certain sensations in the body over and over again. And soon perception begins to take over. We recognize it with a concept and then are limited by that conceptual framework. Very difficult to see in a new way. There's a story which illustrates this, which really touched me. In a way, it's, it's a terribly sad story. <laughs> Long this is this happened years and years ago. The son of somebody I knew was going to school quite young. You know, he was kindergarten or first grade. And the teacher in the class asked them what color an apple was. And this little boy said white. And they says, no, that's wrong. 
You know, apples are red. Or maybe they're green, but they're definitely not white. And the little boy insists, no, apples are white. And the teacher insists, no, they're not white, they're red. Of course, from the boy's point of view, when you open an apple, it's white. Right? And of course, apples are really more white than red or green. And I just felt so bad for that poor little boy, you know, who was actually seeing something quite, in a quite unusual way, and quite a true way. But it got crushed, you know, because of attachment to a, pit, to a particular perception. So this happens a lot in our lives. There are two kinds, two specific perceptions that we have about the world and about ourselves. which are the origin of very many inaccurate conclusions. And so, if we want to understand how this notion of self, how this notion of I, becomes so strongly conditioned in us, how it becomes the core of our understanding ourselves, we need to look at the two misperceptions which give rise to it. The first of them is the perception that we have, there's a little technical term here, of solidity through continuity. We perceive things as solid through continuity. I'll I'll read something from, it's a book called Crazy Wisdom. It's it's actually by one of the editors of The Inquiring Mind, uh, Wes Nisker. It's this wonderful collection um, of writings. He says, A Buddhist aphorism cautions us against missing the moon because we focused on the finger pointing at it. We might also take care not to miss the moon by assuming that today's moon is the same as yesterday's. The moon, too, is a process. Our language behaves as though reality was solid. On the simplest level, it positions a subject and an object, which we think of as real, on opposite sides of a verb, which we think of as less than real. And it's true, we solidify objects. And somehow the verb is not quite as real as the objects. Perhaps the Hopi language reflects more closely the laws of nature. For the Hopi, the nouns are verbs. It is inherent in the language that everything is interacting or a process. Many physicists also tell us that action is all there is. Nonetheless, our language keeps piling up static things, leaving us stuck under the illusion of solidity. It's just to reflect for a moment, both in our understanding of language and in our understanding, our perception of things, 
just how we do this. You know, we solidify objects because we're not seeing the changing nature. We're not seeing their the process of them happening. And we don't see the process happening for a few reasons. Sometimes it's happening too fast. Right? And it's happening so quickly that we don't see the change taking place. There are many, many examples of this. A simple example where we actually miss the reality of what's happening, we go to the movies. You know, and there's a story on the, on the screen, and we get really lost in the unfolding of the story as if there's a real continuity to the beings on the screen. But what's really happening? You know, it's just separate frames moving very quickly. And because we don't see how quickly it's moving, we don't see the discreteness. We don't see the fact that it's separate frames. Many examples. You know, when we hear a sound, if we're not listening very carefully, we can perceive it as one thing, or a breath, or a movement. Yet when we do look carefully, we see that it's actually a process of arising and passing away many, many times a moment. So one reason that we see the solidity, we perceive solidity, is rapidity of change. The other reason is that we don't look carefully enough. It's as if we're watching things from a distance. And one of the favorite Asian examples which there's many opportunities to observe here it's seasonal, is watching um, a line of ants. You know, and it was amazing being in Burma because <laughs> zillions of ants. <laughs> you know, and so many opportunities to watch them as they're moving about. And when you look at it from a distance, it really just looks like a solid line. You, know, you don't see movement, then you don't see discreteness. But then you come more closely, and then you see the line moving. And then you come more closely, and you see the individual ends. And so it's really just a question of observing carefully the nature of phenomena, so that we're not fooled into this misperception of it being a solid continuum. Because it's out of this sense, out of this misperception, that the idea of self is born. In our practice, and it's one of the functions, or one of the purposes of cultivating a strong observing power, is we break through this misperception, we break through this illusion of continuity. We can see it with the breath. Now, when you're watching it very carefully, what is it that you experience? Is it an in-breath or an out-breath, or a rising and falling? Is it just one thing? Or are there many, many, many sensations happening within the duration of a single breath? When we look carefully, we can see this. 
Kabir, who was a great Indian poet and mystic, wrote many beautiful devotional poems. In talking about the power of observation and refining it, he said we should be able to hear the sound of the anklets on the feet of the ants. And that's a wonderful image, you know, especially giving a lot of familiarity with ants. You know, just to imagine little tiny anklets you know, on them. To be listening to phenomena that carefully, you know, so that everything is not just kind of lumped all together in this misperception of solid entities. As the practice continues, what I call the NPMs start going up. That is the noticings per minute. At first, the NPMs are quite low. We notice a few breaths per minute. And then maybe many more breaths. And then many things within each breath or within each sound. And so the quality of our mindfulness gets so sharp, the quality of our perception gets sharp. We begin to break through this illusion of solidity, of continuity. So that's the first misperception that gives rise to the sense of self. The second one is a way we have of seeing things, both of our own internal experience and experience in the world. It's the perception or the misperception of solidity not through the continuity but through not seeing the composite nature of phenomena. There's a very classic example from one of the ancient Buddhist texts. It's a book called The Questions of King Melinda. And it was this Greek king actually. He was a was a remnant of the empire of Alexander the Great. Uh, this king lived in Central Asia, and so there was a crossing of the Greek influence and the Buddhist influence. And there was a very famous monk, Nagasena, who was reputedly enlightened, having this dialogue with the king, who was very interested you know, in the Dharma and in the teachings. And the book is a wonderful collection of questions that the king asks to Nagasena. And he was also having this big problem with the sense of self. So Nagasena used this example. Using, using an example of that time, he talked about a chariot. And he said, O king, you know, here, is, here is a chariot. Point out to me what the chariot is. Is the chariot the spokes of the wheel? No. Is it the rim of the wheel? No. Is it the... I don't really know all the parts of a chariot. (laughs) Is it the seat? Is it the back? Is it this? Is it that? No. The chariot is a concept which we create to describe the relationship of a lot of different parts put together in a particular way. There's no thing in itself that is chariot. 
but rather chariot is a concept, a construct which describes the relationship of certain things. We can apply this understanding to almost everything we perceive. Because almost everything we perceive has this composite nature, whether it's a house, a car, a person, a body, a sense of self. All of those are not things which exist in themselves, but rather are simply a description of a lot of changing elements which are relating together in a particular way. When perception is stronger than mindfulness, we see and recognize the appearance of things. Yes, that's a house, that's a car, that's a person, that's a man, that's a woman. Because we're not seeing, carefully, we're not seeing with mindfulness this composite nature. We create these concepts and ideas and they're often useful ones. I don't mean to suggest that we shouldn't do this because it's essential. It's essential for communication, for operating in the world, to know that car is not a thing in itself, but a concept describing a certain collection of parts, it doesn't mean that we don't get in it and drive it. <laughs> it's just understanding exactly what the nature of it is, and not to be fooled by the surface appearance, by the surface perception of it as car or house or self. And so just for us to begin to see how we create these ideas, these concepts, for things which don't exist in and of themselves, and then how we become attached and identified to these concepts. Some examples of how we do this. We do it a lot with the body. Think for a moment how much of the sense of self that we have, the sense of I that we have, is bound up in our attachment and identification with the body. Yeah, this is who I am. It's this. And this is, this, this is like common sense. You know, this is the conventional understanding. I recently saw a video of an operation that someone had, and somehow through some fantastic technology, they get a little, I don't even know what it's called, but they get a little camera inside and you see the inside of the body. It's amazing. Didn't look like that person at all. I was both 
disgusted and fascinated at the same time. I kept, oh, this is horrible. <laughs> I couldn't stop looking. This is just kind of see the organs and the blood vessels. And, and you, it's like you're on the inside viewing it all. It's a very different sense. There was not much sense of identification. Oh, that's me. <laughs> much easier to understand not self. <laughs> you know, the skin covers a lot. <laughs> and some of the Buddhist reflections, some of the meditations the Buddha suggested which people often shy away from. They think, you know, it's kind of morbid or weird. But it really is just for this purpose of seeing, okay, what, what actually is the body? You know, not a superficial perception, but really to see what, what is it that we call body? Even without going inside and seeing, you know, everything that's there, we can do it through our mindfulness. So I'd just like to do a little experiment right now. Just as you're sitting, begin, if you will, just by moving your finger. And first move it quickly. You know, just, there's a sense when you move it quickly, at least I have the sense, yeah, that's my finger moving. Okay, now move it slowly, really slowly. Very slowly, as slowly as you can. You just begin to feel kind of subtle sensations of movement. There may be a slight pressure or pushing sensation or tingling. What happens to finger when you're feeling it like that? There's no finger there. We don't feel finger. Finger is a concept to describe a certain composite of sensation, of visual form and shape and color. It's so interesting to see all the different ways we're identified, we're attached to this concept of body, when we don't really see the nature of it. Years ago, when I was first practicing in India, maybe more than 20 years ago, I remember the first time I decided to shave my head. I was amazed at the fear involved. <laughs> you know, I thought it was like the most momentous decision I had made in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, what is it going to be like? Because there was some kind of... I didn't even realize that there was some kind of identification. And then I shaved it, and about one second after it was all off, I realized it didn't make the slightest bit of difference. <laughs> the, the hair had nothing to do with me which is very good practice for what has ensued. <laughs> Over the last 20 years. <laughs> but it was just so interesting to see, and to see so clearly, 
just that moment where the attachment and identification was still intact, and then due to a, due to a choice, to see that really it's not who we are. And that's true of the entire composite nature of the body. So that's one concept that we have created which gives rise to this very strong sense of self, this concept of the body, which is a perception of a certain appearance. It's not a thing in itself. There's no thing which is the body. It's just a composite, or it is a composite of a lot of different elements, going down right to the cellular microscopic level. There's nothing in of itself. This is very important to see because we're so attached and identified with it. So much of our sense of self comes from this identification with a concept. That's quite startling to me. (laughs) You know, that we're living in a realm of misperception. Another kind of concept which we create, just to, to give some examples of how pervasive this mechanism is in our lives. We have created, constructed the concept of time. We've created the ideas of past and future. And we live our lives investing a huge amount of reality in them. And for most of us, past and future weigh very heavily on our lives. It's as if we're carrying them on our shoulders. You know, either when we think of the future, it might be of anticipation or fear or anxiety or excitement or a whole range of emotions can come. And with past, we live so much in the past, you know, of remembering and either taking delight in it or regret about it or... Again, a whole host of emotion. What is it? What actually is going on here? When we look carefully to see into the nature of this construct of time, something extremely liberating can happen which is that we begin to see very directly that this notion of past and future are nothing more than a particular thought in the present moment. We have a thought of planning or imagining or remembering or recollecting. What's happening is a thought. If we don't see it for what it is, which we usually don't. We're usually lost in it, having recognized it through perception as this category, past or future. We create this whole reality, and yet in and of itself, it's so light. It has no weight at all. Imagine going through life without this burden of the weight of past and future. 
which doesn't mean that we stop having these thoughts. They're still planning, they're still remembering, they're still... Everything is just as it is, except that we're perceiving correctly. We're seeing what it is that's there. We're not buying in to a concept and then investing the concept with the reality as if the concept exists in and of itself. Do you see this? Do you see the possibility of just resting very simply in the moment? That's very light. That's a very light way to go through life. And we can fulfill all the things that need to be fulfilled. There can be planning, there can be imagining, there can be creating, there can be remembering. Because each one of those things is happening right now as a thought in the moment. And we can be with all of those things for just what they are. This is actually not hard to do. This is not some kind of great mystical experience that you know, we need to wait to some unknown time for. It's just paying attention in the moment and seeing how it's happening. And each one of us can do that each time it happens. As an example of how pervasive, and this is just a very tiny example, of how pervasive our concept of time is and how it influences how we feel about our experience, something that comes up on retreat a lot, are thoughts of the time involved. You know, and I, very often I'll be on retreat, you've probably experienced it while you're here, thought comes, oh, three more days, four more days, five more days, that's thousands of breaths. <laughs> I'll never make it. You know, and it just kind of looms out endlessly. It's a thought of the future. It's a thought of time. Oh, so many more days. And if we're seeing it in a certain way, it creates this mood of gloom. <laughs> or we might think, you know, things might be going well and we're really kind of interested and excited and we think, oh, only three more days. I wish it were three months. You know? And that sense of time creates a whole reality for us. In both of those cases, what's happening? There's just a thought arising in the mind. It's just a thought of three more days, four more days, five more days. It becomes so easy just to settle back and rest in each moment's experience because we're seeing accurately. We're seeing what's there. We're not buying into the fabrication of the reality of a concept. And again, it's not that we don't use the concepts. Time's a useful concept. But we can see it for what it is. Just as an experiment, you know, for the rest of this evening and tomorrow and for however long you can remember it, pay attention to 
how many of the dramas, the melodramas of our life, come about because we're lost in this concept of past or future? Just see how much of our suffering is tied into this because we're either lost in the past or we're imagining the future and not seeing clearly. So there's the concept of the body, there's the concept of time. Another concept which we create We do it a lot. Our life, to a large extent, revolves around it. Are all the concepts of self-image. We have certain image of how we are, of who we are. And then we either attempt to squeeze our lives into this little mold that we've created of self-image, or we find ourselves imprisoned in that mold of self-image. A friend of mine showed me this uh, advertising spread. and it was, it was actually in a Swiss magazine. It was an advertisement for men's clothing. And kind of the star of this, it went over several pages. It was Harry Kay. And the first page showed Harry Kay, the family man, and he was dressed in a certain way. And then Harry Kay, the lover, he was dressed in a different way. And Harry Kay, the sportsman, a different outfit on. <laughs> you know, it went on and on. All the self-images of Harry Kay. It would be interesting to take a look at the images we have of ourselves in the world and on retreat. Sometimes, sometimes the image takes the form of an identification with a role. You know, we create a concept of a role, and that becomes our self-image, the role of teacher, the role of student, the role of parent, the role of child, of employer, of employee. Of th- there are thousands of roles that we can assume. Not that we don't play in different roles, But the roles are concepts. Are we identified? Are we imprisoned by the roles? Is that creating the sense of self, the sense of I? Or is there the sense of play? can see this notion of self-image a lot on retreat. Something that happens a lot for yogis is the good yogi, bad yogi mind. You know, oh, I'm doing really well. You know, and kind of get all excited, and we have this whole fantasy about being the super yogi. <laughs> or we're really struggling, you know, and the, can hardly concentrate on half a breath, and the body's uncomfortable, and we're restless, and we want to go home. And, and then comes this whole self image of bad yogi. I'm a bad yogi, I can't do this, I'm a failure. And it goes on and on. And all of it is fabrication. It's all creating a sense of self through identification with a certain image, with a certain role. 
I saw this a lot, especially in my early retreats with Upandita. He uses a very specific and detailed reporting form for interviews. You know, where you go in and you report very specifically in, in quite a formal way, just on the experience in the sitting and walking. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And what I found was that it was so difficult to be simple and straightforward because there was so much subtle and not so subtle judgment and evaluation in my mind. You know, oh, this is good, this is not so good, I should say it this way. (laughs) It's a terrible burden. (laughs) You know, it's really a lot of suffering. It's so much simpler and easier just to be able to go in very straightforwardly and simply, yeah, this happened, this happened, I was really sleepy, there was a lot of pain, whatever. What was quite surprising to me was how difficult it was to do that, you know, because of this film or veneer of self-image. And so we have to see how we're creating that, whether it's on retreat, in relationship to other people, as we operate in the world. Concept of the body, concept of time, concept of self-image. There are, there are thousands of concepts we could talk about. The last one I want to mention, which is at the heart of the teaching and at the heart of our dilemma, is precisely the creation of the concept of self. Not just self-image, but the very notion that there is someone, some entity, something which I am, some core to it all. Why is this concept so strongly conditioned? Why do we hold on, cherish this notion so deeply? One reason is that we have not trained ourselves to look very precisely and very carefully at the composite nature of what we're calling self. And the beauty of the practice is that it over time reveals this composite nature. We see that everything we're calling self is a sensation, a thought, a sound, an image, this, 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 this. And we begin to see that there's no one behind it. That it's simply an unfolding panorama of experience arising and passing. Until we observe this for ourselves, until we see it clearly, we stay caught on the surface perception of recognition. It's like the Nasruddin story, who was this Sufi teaching figure, of going into a bank and wanting to cash a check. And the bank teller wouldn't cash it because he had no identification. So he reached into his pocket, pulled out a mirror, looked into it, and said, yep, that's me all right. (laughs) 
that's, that's us. I mean, we really are going through the world like that. Yep, this looks like me. That's the surface recognition, the surface perception. We need to go deeper than that. We need to see that what we're calling self, what we're underneath the appearance, is just a lot of changing elements which fit together in a particular way. But even when we see this, even when we can see it and begin to differentiate some of these composite parts, there's another process which also conditions the sense of self. And this is or requires a further care in our understanding. And that is, even when we're seeing the different composite parts, the sensations, the thoughts, the emotions, the sounds, what we've been conditioned to do very deeply, what we have the habit of doing, is identifying with different of these parts as being me, as being self. As you're sitting, you know, and you're beginning to feel strong sensation in the body, look carefully to see how much you're personalizing the sensations. And I think we do this a lot, particularly with pain, although we also do it with pleasant sensations. There's the sense, there's the almost automatic sense, this is happening to me. This is my sensation. Even when we actually see what the sensation is, it's burning, it's pressure, it's whatever, there's often this overlay of identification. And if we can see that and drop in through mindfulness to seeing it just for what it is, not identifying with it, just a sensation coming and going, We identify with thoughts. You know, all these different thoughts that are coming through, there's this habitual tendency, I'm thinking, this is my thought. And we create this sense of self through the identification with the thought process. Again, as an experiment. I hope you can remember all these experiments. <laughs> I mean, that's where, that's where the real insight comes, not only from hearing, but from actually doing it, you know, and seeing in one's own experience. With thoughts, during the next sitting, take every thought as coming from the person behind you. Right? They're not yours. Right? They're just coming... And you mean to see we can have a totally different relationship to thoughts. <laughs> it might be a relief to have them coming from the person behind us. You know, to see that they don't actually belong to anybody. Thoughts arise due to certain conditions. They're like the clouds passing through the sky. The clouds don't have roots. They're not rooted to the ground. They're just clouds passing through. The clouds don't belong to... I don't know what the metaphor is. They don't belong to anyone. In exactly the same way, the thoughts are just coming through. 
we identify with emotions. Even when we see, even when we see all of these composite elements, the sensations in the body and thoughts and emotions, it's not enough to, to begin to get past the appearance and see the composite elements. We also need to see this process of identification and how we can be with these experiences without identifying. But so often, I'm angry, I'm afraid, I'm happy, I'm excited. We relate everything back to I, to me, to self. And so the sense of self, the concept of self, becomes very embedded. We don't even stop there. We don't even stop with, I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling happy. We construct another level of self. We create a whole superstructure, a skyscraper of self. I'm a fearful person. I'm an angry person. I'm a happy person. So not only are we identifying with it in the moment, suddenly we create this concept of a person for an entire lifetime who's angry, who's happy, who's sad, who's whatever. And it's it's all fabricated. Really what's happening is that due to certain conditions which are continually changing, certain things arise. Anger arises in a moment, happiness, sadness, fear, excitement. Just like thoughts, the emotions arise, they're felt, and they pass away. Can we come to a place where we're There's just the unfolding experience. We see that what we are is this process of changing experience. It's not that it's happening to someone. What we call the self, what we call the I, is the process of changing experience. There's no one underneath it to whom it's happening. Let's just rest in it, float in it, flow in it. (laughs) This is a very different way of understanding. paradox of this understanding of selflessness is that nothing is any different. Everything stays exactly as it always was. Because from the beginning, the self is a construct. And so seeing into selflessness Same thoughts, same feelings, same sensation. Everything is exactly the same, so there need not be any anxiety about understanding the selfless nature of phenomena. Everything is exactly the same, except that we see it clearly. That's what Vipassana means. We're seeing it as it is. And because we're actually seeing it clearly, 
there's less attachment and there's less suffering. I'd like to close with a just a, uh, some excerpts from a 14th century samurai poem. And it's quite amazing to think of some being, you know, centuries ago in a totally different culture. And when you hear it, you'll see the relationship. It's us. I have no parents. I make the heavens and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. It's always the same journey. And it's the journey of understanding. It's the journey of seeing clearly. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.